Hello there, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Health Mystery Solved. A few months ago, in episode 96, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jim Hernsern, a hormone expert, compounding pharmacist extraordinaire, and one of the pioneers of modern pharmaceutical compounding. In that episode, we discussed bioidentical hormones and really demystified what they mean, how they could be used, and why it could be such a wonderful option for some people, as well as why many doctors are not speaking about it due to one very flawed study. That episode, episode 96, got a ton of attention, and I've gotten so many emails and messages about it. You told me how eye-opening it was, and you wanted to learn more. There were more questions, and I thought bringing Jim back to talk even more in depth about this and go through his protocols and your questions is going to be helpful. I am so excited to dig even more into this. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know, because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. Jim, it's so great to have you back. Welcome again. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This is so fun uh, to be on with you, Ina. Definitely. I've really enjoyed all of our conversations. And I am super excited to dig into bioidentical hormone support for perimenopause and menopause even more today because my listeners loved what you had to say and they want more. In our last episode, we discussed the difference between synthetic hormones and bioidentical hormones and how they work in the body. We also chatted about why hormones are sometimes frowned upon and a prominent study that was really not properly assessed. And because of this flawed study, all hormones, including bioidentical ones, which are the natural ones, got a bad rep. And you showed us exactly why the study was flawed and that hormones, especially the bioidentical ones, really do not increase chances of breast and other female cancers and other health issues like the study discussed, which is just so amazing to know. In fact, the researchers that originally released the incorrect information in the last actually 10 years have released the correct information and are showing that it is okay and it's actually beneficial. We chatted about the many benefits of hormones and why someone may want to consider them. So let's actually start there and then we can get into many more details about how, if, and when people can do that. So Jim, what are some of the reasons why women would want to consider bioidentical hormones? Well, I find that some women are motivated by having better health. You know, they're they're worried about risk and benefit ratios of the hormones. Should I use hormones? Should I not? Is it safe? Is it going to help me with my health? Other women are more concerned about quality of life. And, you know, personally, uh, as a practitioner, I'm trying to help women achieve both better health and better quality of life because I want them to enjoy this ride. It's such a gift and we should enjoy it and, uh, and we should do it in a healthy manner. And the hormones are give you a lot of bang for the buck when you're talking about health and quality of life. Yeah. So what are 
some of the things in terms of health and quality of life that hormones can help with. Well, I love the fact that on a, let's say a menopausal woman, she's going to have less risk of heart attack and stroke, which is the number one killer of women. We lose 400,000 women a year to heart attack and stroke. Um, also osteoporosis, the number two killer of women. Uh, what about breast cancer? We know that the women, if they're going to be using these hormones, they're going to have a 50% decreased risk of heart disease and stroke, uh, 50% decreased risk in osteoporosis, 20% decreased risk in breast cancer cancer risks, which is just blows women's minds that it actually decreases the risk, but also 78% decreased risk in dementia. You know, I do not want to lose my brain. And what about colon cancer, reduced risk, uh, 50%, longevity, and and anti-aging? You know, none of us want to age faster than we have to. And plus, isn't it nice to know that these hormones, not only are they sex hormones, but they're also anti-inflammatory hormones, which means they're going to be reducing inflammation, not only in your body, in your joints, in your muscles, but also in your brain. You know, brain inflammation uh, leads to all kinds of uh, disturbances, including dementia. So, yes, there's a lot of reasons that we want to do this. And plus, what woman wants to have hot flashes and night sweats, wants to lose their metabolism, start getting a slow metabolism, gain weight. What woman wants to have no libido? I mean, of course, we want these hormones on board to make them feel better, but also to be healthier. Yeah. Jim, these numbers are astonishing. I mean, I think that women may already realize that, okay, you know, as my hormones start to decline, I may have some issues like you mentioned with hot flashes and potentially issues with libido and, you know, maybe some dryness because these are pretty common and these are talked about. But dementia, heart disease, osteoporosis, and have such high percentages where the hormones can be so helpful for those. That's amazing. And it's not really nearly talked about as much as I think it should be. Absolutely. And you know, that dementia, I, I don't know why, I, I do a lot of brain work. And uh, and that dementia really struck home with me. We don't have dementia in my family, but it is a big fear. And it, and it should be a fear for all of us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and University of Arizona Medical School did a study on almost a half a million women and found out that women who are using compounded bioidentical hormones had a 78% decreased risk of dementia, whereas women who used traditional hormones had a 50% decreased risk. So, so yes, they got benefit from the traditional hormones, but they got more benefit from the compounded bioidentical hormones. Yeah. And as we discussed in our last episode, the synthetic hormones, they're not exactly the same as your own hormones. And as you mentioned, one of the main uh, ones that are out there is made from urine of horses, right? (laughs) They actually collect the urine of pregnant mares, pregnant horses, um, they dry it into a pill. And that was the number one drug in the world up until 2002 when that that study came out uh, about hormones. But isn't that interesting? The number one drug in the world was horse piss. (laughs) Excuse my language. (laughs) I'm from West Texas, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I hear you. And you know, it's interesting because, you know, what you're mentioning with dementia, even the synthetic hormones from horse's urine can still help dementia, but obviously not nearly as much as the bioidentical. And that's because the bioidentical are just the same as your own hormones. So your body knows how to process it versus these synthetic ones. It probably takes days, uh, weeks even to completely get that out of your system because they're not exactly the same. You're exactly right. Um, just a, a Primarin tablet typically takes uh, three weeks for the body to metabolize all the me- metabolize means to biodegrade all of these hormones out of your system because there's a bunch of them. Horses have a lot of different versions of estrogen in their bloodstream. And it's interesting how it takes the human body a long time to get rid of those. And 
you know, and as far as helping with hot flashes, yes, it's going to help with hot flashes, but is it going to give as much benefit as the bioidenticals? Because bioidenticals are, as you said, exactly the same hormones your body's been making your whole life. And the receptor sites, which is where the hormones work, like a key in a lock to unlock and have the good effect, um, it, it fits. It fits the lock perfectly. You know, it's not like forcing a crowbar into the, into the lock to open it. Uh, it fits the lock perfectly. Therefore, you get the best effects and the least side effects. Now, one thing that I wanted to mention is there are a few different schools of thought on this. There are some people who think, well, nature intended things a certain way, right? People go through menopause, say, in their mid to late 40s, maybe early 50s. And so that's how it's supposed to be. And if nature intended it this way, then we're just going to do that. And maybe I'm just not meant to have hormones. And of course, there's the other school of thought that's saying, well, why not? Why not keep our hormones in the same level where they were in our 20s or 30s? Why should they decline when we're 50? What would you say to that? I have some women who come to me and they say, Jim, I'm not having any hot flashes. I'm not having any night sweats. I feel great. Why would I even want to consider hormones? And that's when I start talking about the health benefits. I say, these are things that are going on inside of you that you have no idea are happening. You don't know that you're, you have a higher risk of heart attack within three years of menopause than a man. And you can't feel that happening inside your heart. You can't feel your bones degrading. You can't feel your brain degrading. You you don't know that you're aging faster until some of your friends tell you, God, at least you're aging faster <laughs> and your skin mm-hmm. becomes more sallow and, and the, the skin does not have that youthful vigor that it once had. And And so there's all kinds of changes that happen in a woman, but we don't pay attention to our bodies. You, and you, you know as well as, as me that most of us, tend to overlook what's happening in our body. We don't want to be hypochondriacs. We don't want to be um, hypervigilant about our bodies. However, it just makes sense to me that you would want to be as optimal as you can be. And and I know women who said, you know what, Jim, I hear what you're saying. And it's just, it's just not for me. And I said, you know what? You looked into it. You know the statistics. And you're making a decision for yourself. And I respect that. It's just for most of my women and, and my men as well who are who are having low hormone issues, they say, you know, I would rather feel better. I would rather be optimal. I would rather reduce my risks of these bad things happening. I would rather maintain my relationship and my libido with my husband. And and I would I would rather feel like I did, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And so, and, and that's a personal choice. And, and I'm not going to chide someone for which way they choose. I'm simply going to be the vessel to help them. I think sometimes also, and again, like you said, it's absolutely a personal choice and we would never tell people what they should do. I think it's more about educating people about this option that they just don't always realize or completely understand. But the other thing that I think is interesting is if you think about nature and obviously as a nutritionist, I try to do things as naturally as possible. And so when people tell me, well, what about nature, right? If nature intended your hormones to decline, why would you sort of mess with that? But if we think about that, I mean, that was a very, 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 very long time ago when things were set the way they're set, right? And a while back, life expectancy wasn't what it is now. And so if life expectancy was 50 and our hormones declined, 
right? At 50, it's like, well, you're going to die anyway, so who cares, right? I mean, it's another way of looking at it. It's different now. Right. You're absolutely right. Um, I, I know is it varied between uh, the life expectancy, 45 to 50, and which means that that uh, these days with the life expectancy mid-80s, um, you're talking about almost half your life that's going to be spent in, in a hormone deficiency state. And I'm just wondering, is that really the way we want to live our life? And if you choose to, and you know the risk, you know the benefits of the hormones, and you choose not to do anything, I understand that. But I, I hate to let lack of, of uh, information about the statistics and about the risk uh, prevent someone from making a good decision. Absolutely. Because I think that's the biggest thing. Many people who may have heard of hormones have only heard that it can be done for only a very small amount of time and the chances of breast cancer and other things will increase. And, you know, as we're saying, that's not true. And I think this is really important to know. I kind of want to scream this from the rooftops, you know, <laughs> it's not true. It is safe if it is something that you want to do. So there are two types of women that I come in contact with a lot. And I got so many messages and emails about the original episode that we did. And it was from two types of women. The first um, was the woman in her late 30s, early or maybe even mid 40s, saying, I'm not in menopause yet. I feel fine. However, listening to this, I'm thinking, I don't want my hormones to decline. I like where I am. I'd like to keep them there. So what do I do and where do I start? And then it's the woman in her 50s or 60s or even 70s that was reaching out saying, you know what? I'm already in menopause. I've been in menopause for 10, 15, maybe 20 years. But listening to this, I'm wondering, wait, I've been suffering all this time. Do I still need to suffer? Or can I do something, you know, even though it's later? So let's talk about both of these women and what people can do both, you know, as they're getting into and not quite in menopause and then those that are already in menopause because the things that we would do would be different in terms of testing and how we would support them, correct? Right. So I guess we should maybe start with the premenopausal, uh, perimenopausal women and, uh, and maybe they still feel okay. But then you start asking yourself, well, have you noticed heavier periods starting to happen? I know you've, you've addressed this in some of your previous uh, episodes, but, but are you having heavier periods, which means hormone imbalance? Are you having endometriosis, uh, fibroid tumors in the uterus? Um, are you having um, hot flashes or night sweats, um, even though you're not menopausal? Um, has your libido gone down? Has your anxiety level climbed? You know, are you not sleeping as well? You know, so energy, how about weight gain? So we, we look at all of these, these uh, symptoms and we go, hmm, there's a woman who maybe has hormone imbalance uh, before she's hit menopause. Maybe we should suggest testing to uh, find out if that's valid and then maybe uh, have some supportive hormone therapy uh, to get them through that premenopausal, perimenopausal time until they get to menopause. Great. And so what are some of the tests that you suggest? You know, I personally um, work with doctors a wide variety of doctors, and, and many of them are traditional doctors, and they believe in serum testing. Therefore, I do a lot of serum testing. Um, it's their belief system. It, it's where they're comfortable. Um, if and, and plus, liability-wise, if they were to have to go on a court case, you know, they want to be able to do the standard of practice, which is serum testing, okay, blood testing. And so we want to test hormones, um, and we want to test it on your cycle around day 19. That's whenever your estrogen is at its second highest of the whole month and your progesterone is at its highest for the whole month. 
And so day 19 is the perfect time to do the testing. We'll also look at not only estradiol, we'll look at uh, progesterone, we'll look at estrone, which is another estrogen. We'll look at testosterone, DHEA sulfate, and, and we'll try to get a feeling for the hormone balance that we have going on. Most of the women at this time have plenty of estrogen. They're still estrogen factories. However, progesterone is not really up to snuff. By age 35 to 40, progesterone is dropping rapidly. The average woman in America has lost 80% of her progesterone by age 40. Wow. Therefore, the heavier periods, the greater risk of endometriosis, the greater risk of fibroid tumors, which are not cancer, but they're just bothersome bleeding tumors that often cause you to have to have a hysterectomy. So let's prevent all that. Let's see if we can maintain hormone balance and reduce the risks of all that and have them feeling better as well. Because when we get the progesterone on board, the PMS goes away. Um, they start, <laughs> their friends, they may not even know they're having PMS, but their friends and, <laughs> uh, and spouses will tell you, so you know what, you're not okay for those few days, <laughs> you know. Yeah, sometimes they just have cyclical headaches, you know. Those, yeah, those I was just going to ask you because that's a really common thing that I hear. And it tends, I mean, some people have it their whole life, but I hear it more and more happening to women in their mid to late 30s and early 40s, even if they haven't had it with their menstrual cycles when they were younger. You know, I had this... Uh, Lady, she was a you know beautiful gal. Um, she type AA personality. Had her own business. Had her own BMW. You know, I mean, she she was a woman's woman. You know, and uh, you know, great worked out. And she said, Jim, it started in my twenties. Yeah, I'd have a little PMS and and mostly uh, with headache. Um, and and it then it got in my thirties, got to be longer and longer. Next thing I know, I'm two weeks into a PMS headache episode every month. I can't not be out of the out of commission for two weeks and so we started her on some progesterone and uh, i started really conservatively and and uh, and it it helps some the first month but not enough the second month it, it helps some but it, it was having to kind of build up and then by the third month she came in and gave me a big old hug and i work for hugs by the way um and she mm -hmm. gave me a big old hug that affirmation and just said jim this is the first time since i was 25 that i had no pms and no headache and thanks to you and, uh, you know, and this was several years ago, I got an email from her that she's moving back into my area and she was so excited because she loves using us. And so anyway, she's coming back. That's great. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a lot of different symptoms that can happen from what you're mentioning is estrogen dominance. And for everyone listening, estrogen dominance doesn't necessarily mean that you have very high estrogen. It could, right? But it typically means that there's more estrogen than progesterone. So both hormones can be low, but estrogen can still be higher than progesterone, creating that dominance. And because progesterone starts to decline in our 30s, that's one big reason for creating dominance. But additionally, we have so many different exogenous estrogens. So these are estrogens that come outside the body from plastics, from eating certain foods that are estrogenic, for, um, things like soy, or even certain animal products that aren't raised organically that are fed hormones and fed antibiotics, you know, they're going to have higher levels of estrogen. And so because of all of these things were more prone to estrogen dominance. And then on top of having our progesterone such a drop, that's how that happens. You're absolutely right. And, and estrogen dominance, as, as you, you, you very eloquently put it, most people think, oh, I have way too much estrogen. No, no, you usually have 
just not enough progesterone. Now, I have had cases that women did have crazy high levels of estrogen, and we couldn't even give enough progesterone to balance it. So, therefore, I gave soluble fiber, um, decalcium glutarate, you know, a supplement, things that will decrease recirculation of estrogen. And, you know, they felt better almost instantly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because, yeah, it's really about addressing both. It's supporting progesterone, but also making sure we're not just reabsorbing all of that estrogen and being mindful of how much estrogen we're taking in from the environment and our food, for sure. So for those people who are, you know, maybe having some of these issues or they're in their 40s and they know that hormones can be beneficial because of everything they're learning and they want to start looking into that, when do you suggest that they do the testing? Um, for the premenopausal or are we in menopausal? So still premenopausal. Okay, premenopausal. Um, we always like to do baseline testing on day 19 of the cycle, as we were talking earlier, which it means 19 days from the first day of your period. Um, that's the best day to do the testing. And when we do this testing, um, again, we want to test the estradiol, estrone, progesterone, testosterone, and DHEA sulfate as a minimum. Maybe sex hormone binding globulin is a good thing to use as well. And we do that testing in the morning, first thing. And let me just caution uh, people. If they're using biotin, which most of my women are for hair and nails, biotin helps that, helps with glucose conversion into energy. But And biotin's a good hormone. It's a good, good B vitamin. However, biotin interferes with lab values. So you're going to get skewed lab values if you're taking biotin within five days of that lab test. So make sure that you leave the biotin off. You get your labs done first thing in the morning, fasting. Um, First thing in the morning, you heard me that because hormones are 20% higher in the morning than they are in the afternoon or evening. And uh, and then if you are using some kind of hormone preparation, you need to leave that off that morning of the test until after you've had your, your, your blood drawn, okay? One other note you know, is is some of the women are using, let's say, a, a premenopausal, using a topical progesterone. And, uh, and if they are, the progesterone concentrates in that arm from the hand application and in the arm into the antecubital area, which is the elbow area where they take the blood. So it's best to avoid hand contact with the hormone with the hand or the arm from which blood will be drawn for two days. Therefore, you won't get a a super high value that's only indicative of just those tissue levels and not of the entire body. Does that make sense? That does. Yes, definitely. Now, my other question to you in terms of timing is in addition to, and it's very helpful to know it should be in the morning. And of course, we want to do it about a week after ovulation, so day 19 or so, but also timing in terms of their age. So let's just say someone is 43 and they're not going through perimenopause, at least as far as they know, right? They don't have hot flashes. They are getting very, very regular periods. Is it helpful for them to get the testing then if they know that they are interested in considering hormones? Or do you recommend that they wait a little longer until they start to see their periods shift or have certain symptoms that may indicate to them that, okay, now hormones are starting to shift and we're getting into the perimenopausal time and test then? You know, I'm I'm proactive. I, I like to have information. If you don't ask questions, you don't get answers. And so, therefore, I like to do testing just to see, because since the st- statistics say that the woman is, is, for the most part, 
uh, going to be low on progesterone by the time she's 40, um, 80% lower than, than when she was 20, it makes sense to go ahead and test and say, you know what, here's a baseline. And and if, if I'm feeling great, if I'm not having heavy periods or PMS or any of those other symptoms we talked about, then maybe just get a baseline test. And then when you do start having symptoms, you can compare that baseline test to what was happening when you were feeling your best. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing I've, I omitted telling, uh, suggesting test is LHFSH, luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. Because if we see an imbalance of luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, we can pick up early cases of, of PCOS. So, so I love to uh, additionally test LH and FSH. Now, those are typically tested earlier in the month, though. Is it okay to test them on day 19 when you do everything else? On day 19 is when we're looking for that inversion, because if a woman does have PCOS, we're going to see the LH about two times higher than the FSH on day 19. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I spoke with with uh, several endocrinologists about this and, and validated that as well as my integrative medicine experts across the country and all agreed that that's the best time to do that. Great, great. Because typically most gynecologists will say come in on day three or day two and we want to test it then. And I feel like those results are helpful for some things, but really not very helpful for a lot. Yeah, maybe for, for fertility, maybe, but uh, but when we're thinking in terms of okay, um, what is the absolute best my estrogen is and progesterone is that I can test on just one day a month, and that's day nineteen. Mm-hmm. Got it. And so, if this woman who's say forty three, she gets her hormones tested and she's feeling good, she doesn't have any issues, but she knows that she wants to consider hormone replacement when her hormones go down, and she tests and her levels are good then you suggest that she wait, right? And then maybe test in another year or two if she starts to see her cycles shift or gets any symptoms. And then based on that, would work with someone to then customize hormones that would be needed for her. And and I agree with that. And I, and I do say that... that um, as opposed to men who we ignore our bodies quite often, uh, women are, are not hypervigilant, but they at least pay attention, you know? And, uh, and we don't need, want to label you as being hypochondriacs or, or hypervigilant, but but you do seem to notice things. I mean, because you're used to paying attention. You're used to pay attention to the length of your periods and and what they're like and and all that, just looking for normalcy. And so I, I do love the fact that that uh, when you start noticing any little change, you know, then that's just a that's a symptom. That's your body trying to tell you, hey, I need some help here. And listen to your body. So yes. Great. And then as she's having issues, she would test again. And then we could see if possibly progesterone is down or if maybe estrogen is down as well. Now, do you find, and I know everyone is different, but typically, especially when you're dealing with women that are maybe just starting to go through perimenopause or or in that space, do you typically see progesterone being low and needed to support that first before they actually get into the estrogen therapy? These days, uh, at that age, the number one thing we're going to be using will be progesterone. Um, in addition, if we uh, we were since we're looking at testosterone levels, both free testosterone and total testosterone, when we see testosterone levels drip, dropping, which I'm seeing more and more, I, 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 it's really amazing how low how many women I'm catching low testosterone on in their 30s and 40s, and so therefore we'll give some testosterone and they feel better. And women say, "Well, I don't want to, I don't want to grow a beard, I don't want to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, get big old muscles, you know, like those American gladiator women or anything," you know. And I say, "No." 
your estrogen is going to prevent that. You're going to have nice elongated muscles, you know. So, but testosterone is part of the health of a woman. I mean, it decreases the risk of breast cancer. It helps the brain. It helps the metabolism. Um, it helps libido. Um, it, it's a positive hormone for women. And we don't want it too high, but neither do we want it too low. And so then you would be sporting progesterone, possibly testosterone. And with progesterone, I think people may be familiar with topical progesterone. That's something that you know people sometimes use even in pregnancy if they need more progesterone or there's progesterone suppositories. What type of progesterone do you prefer? I have found uh, that probably 97% of my women prefer the oral progesterone and we make all kinds of different strengths. And uh, we make anywhere from 25 milligrams all the way up to 400 milligrams. So it's, it's completely varied based on the case. But on the premenopausal woman, I usually start out at 50 or 75 milligrams uh, oral progesterone in a slow-release capsule. And why we like that is because, number one, when you take it orally, progesterone is converted very quickly into something called allopregnenolone, allopregnenolone being a metabolite of progesterone that hits GABA receptors and makes women feel calm. Because a lot of women say, well, Jim, why am I more anxious and have more anxiety than I did when I was in, in my 20s and 30s? And I said, well, your progesterone is dropping. Therefore, you have lower allopregnenolone levels, and therefore, you're more likely to have PMS or anxiety. And also, you may not sleep as well. And she said, well, most of my women say, you know, that's exactly what I'm having. And, you know, it's not that unfamiliar a thing. Mm -hmm. And so we love that oral progesterone. And also, there's been some suggestions in, in literature that oral progesterone is more protective than topical progesterone for two things. Number one is, is to decrease the risk of breast cancer. Uh, which we all want to decrease any risk we possibly can. And number two, when we use the top of the oral progesterone, it seems to suppress the lining of the uterus from getting too thick. We call it the endometrial lining. And when it gets too thick, that's when you start having heavier periods. And it also uh, can lead to an increased risk of uterine cancer. Therefore, we know that, that oral progesterone can be more protective against preventing uterine cancer. So kind of a twofer there. Yeah, yeah, that's great to know. And I'm assuming compliance-wise, it's probably easier to take a pill than to have to rub a cream and then worry about that cream getting somewhere else or, you know, maybe having your partner, you know, accidentally touch you where the cream is and then get it on them. I mean, it sounds like that would be a little bit more of a hassle. Yep. <laughs> the transference of the creams is an issue. And uh, transference from partner to partner to grandchildren to children to dogs. I mean, it is truly a problem with the topicals and the transdermals. And, and in estrogens, we almost always use transdermal um, or we use labial in, in a lot of cases uh, if transdermal is not appropriate. And so uh, as opposed to oral estrogens. So it does make a difference. So that makes sense about progesterone and testosterone. What about estrogen? So people will start on progesterone typically first, possibly testosterone. And how and when do they test and how often, I should ask, do they test to see when they are going to start to need estrogen? Because if these women are in their mid-40s, you know, they might be going through perimenopause and menopause maybe in five years, right? Maybe in seven years from the time the way they would start progesterone. You know, depending on symptoms, most of my um, really in-tuned integrative medicine uh, practitioners will test anywhere from two to four times a year. And, uh, and, and if we, if we suspect that the woman is, is not metabolizing her hormones properly, we will use urine testing. And the urine testing is cool because it tells us how the hormones break down. 
what they break down into. Do they break down into protective compounds or do they break down into higher risk compounds? Um, and so like estrogen can be broken down into, um, for instance, 2-hydroxyestrone, 4-hydroxyestrone, and 16-alpha-hydroxyestrone. I'm not going to test you on that, but I can tell you that two of those metabolites have been shown to be a higher risk for breast cancer, whereas the other metabolite is protective against breast cancer. So, so when we want to know these metabolites, breakdowns, um, it's great to do urine testing. Also, when I see a woman that is that is um, losing some hair on testosterone therapy, I'll do a urine test and I can find out if they're breaking down their testosterone into a good form of dihydrotestosterone, which is a more potent testosterone form, or is it a, a another form of, of testosterone, dihydrotestosterone, which causes hair loss and acne. And so I can see that breakdown of the hormones and I can say, okay, here's the cause of your hair loss. Here's the cause of your acne, you know, or it's, this is not the cause. We're going to go look at thyroid instead for your hair loss. We're going to go look at your iron levels. So it's important to understand that we do have options on testing that I love the, the urine testing uh, gives us some cool information. Yeah. I'm a big fan of urine testing as well. The Dutch test is one of the main test out there and it really really gives us a lot i love dutch testing do it all the time i love rhine labs rhine labs is a 24-hour collection which is probably a little more accurate than the dutch however it's more it's not as convenient so you know you give or take a little there okay yeah but what you're saying is that once someone starts on estrogen and testosterone if if needed then we test we make sure that they're metabolizing their own estrogen well and as estrogen starts to decline then you would go in and then you would support estrogen a little bit as needed. And at that point, they might also be starting to have irregular cycles. You know, what's interesting is that most women feel like that they're, they're premenopausal and then they're menopausal. You know, they drop off a cliff into menopause and that's not true. You approach menopause for 10 years and your hormones are, are having good and bad quarters. You know, I mean, you might have two or three months of really good, strong hormones and you might have two or three months of, of not as strong hormones and maybe some hot flashes, night sweats. And, and then all of a sudden here comes another uh, bout of strong. Hormones. Oh, that was just a false alarm. And in other words, this is going to go up and down for 10 years until you finally hit menopause when you com completely stopped having periods. Okay. And uh, so I always want to, make sure that women know it's not just dropping off, stepping off a cliff into menopause. It is a gradual process. And during this gradual process, we sometimes need on the bad months, a little estrogen support. So we'll maybe give them some, some estrogen to use and they can tell when they need it. And they'll, they'll use it for two or three months and they go, you know what, I'm feeling strong again. And they, they leave it off for two or three months. And then here comes another low point, you know? Mm -hmm. And so again, the, the hormones just don't die one day. <laughs> they slow down over a 10 year period. Right, of course. Now, with estrogen, that's something they would use, obviously, all month long, and then maybe some months versus others, depending how they feel until they're in menopause. And what about progesterone? Is it something that you're using every day with the women who are premenopausal, or are you using the progesterone only at the last half of their cycle to mimic what a natural cycle will do, where progesterone would normally rise on day 14 and peak on day 21 or so? I have three main protocols. Of course, I have some sub-protocols underneath that, but three main protocols. If they're having cyclical headaches, I will use the same dose of progesterone all month long. Like I might give 50 to 75 milligrams at night every single day of the month. They'll still have their period on day 28. It'll still work out just fine, but they'll have lighter little periods. They'll have less cyclical headaches and, uh, and, and they feel better. 
and they have uh, almost no PMS. Other women, we might use a low dose, like let's just say 50 milligrams as a baseline all month long, and then we'll go up to 100 milligrams days 13 through 26. 13 through 26 is when progesterone starts rising. It hits a peak at day 19 and then tails off around day 25, 26, which then gives a signal to the uterus to have a period. And so that that rising and falling of the progesterone we're mimicking with that with that dosage then uh, helps the women stay regular, but it also helps all the symptoms of PMS and and uh, and such. The the third thing that we sometimes do is we'll just simply give progesterone days thirteen through twenty six. Period. I don't use that very often because most women enjoy that low dose baseline progesterone all month long. They feel better. They feel more normal. And so they don't mind using a a low dose every day, but then the higher dose days 13 through 26. And that's probably my most popular protocol. Yeah. But you can still use one same dose, like a 50 or 75 all month long too, if your progesterone is just say a little bit low, right? That is for, uh, again, I, I offer that to any woman, but I especially urge that on the women with cyclical headaches. That's great to know. Because they're the ones who need a steady dosage all month long. Because when you start jacking the progesterone level up higher um, and then it drops, sometimes that'll trigger a headache. So therefore, that's why we use the kind and gentle same dose all month long on those women. That's actually something I find has been happening to me. Not every month, but some months I get a headache, usually day 25 or so. And then I know my period's coming in four or five days. Yeah. If we give too high a dose every day, it'll it'll stop a period or, or it'll cause irregularity of the periods. That's why this is a fine tuning thing of, of getting just the right dosage to alleviate symptoms, but not enough to, to override your cycle. Now, when people want to test to see how they're doing and they're already taking progesterone, do they stop the progesterone before the blood draw or do they keep... Keep taking it so that you can actually see what their levels are with the progesterone that you're supplementing. Yeah, good question. We always want to do it with the progesterone on board. And and because it, it makes no sense to say, okay, I know I was low in progesterone because I tested and I was low and I started using it and I'm helping and my symptoms are being alleviated. I'm doing great. And and then go off it so you can do another test. I, you, that makes no sense, which I know doctors will do that. And I, I feel like that maybe they just don't have a good grasp of the whole picture. What we want to do is we want to see what is the success of our therapy. Therefore, we want to see what is the level with the new hormone on. And uh, and I can tell you that sometimes those levels are a little disappointing because when we the, – the, there's new testing methods that are ultra-sensitive progesterone. And so the rises that we used to see in, in progesterone testing were – we'd go from maybe three or four up to 15 now – with this new modern testing that's much more sensitive, we might only go from a pre-therapy level of two or three up to four or five. And it's not going to go very high. And so as previously established reference ranges for progesterone are actually are being rethought because of this new testing method. So I wanted to make sure that I cautioned people not to be disappointed in their therapy because of this new testing method. Oh, and is the testing method... Just your general sort of lab core quest, labs like that? Correct. Most of the quests have caught up. All the lab corps have caught up because lab corp uses the same machines at every uh, site they have, whereas uh, quest uh, sometimes has old machines at some of their sites. Therefore, it'll be the old testing method. So it, but most of them have, have upgraded. 
Right. But are you saying then that because the testing is a little bit different, if a woman tests her progesterone, even without taking hormones, it's going to be lower than what it was when she tested it, say, maybe five years ago? Yeah, it was a, it was somewhere between five and seven years ago that this new me- uh, method came in. And, uh, and I've seen that they haven't adjusted the reference ranges yet, in spite of the fact that the numbers are coming in a lot different. That's really interesting. Because I think that there are people who look at the results thinking their progesterone is low when they compare to where they were 10 years ago. But then we wonder, is it low or is it a different methodology in terms of testing now? I do think that that you can look at symptoms and you can pretty much predict accurately what's going on. And then when you look at the labs and you just want to validate with your labs, you don't want to treat and do therapy based solely on labs. You always want to have a combination of symptoms that indicate therapy is needed and then validate with labs, then validate your progress you're making on the therapy with labs. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. And so what I hear you saying then for women that are premenopausal that are interested in hormones is they would test their levels, they will likely need progesterone first, and then as estrogen starts to decline, then they would obviously work with their doctor to then support estrogen when they need that. Now, do you find that if they start to support progesterone first, do you think that they cycle longer than they would have if they didn't do any hormone therapy? You know, I have not noticed that at all. When when their body is ready to go into menopause, it's ready to go into menopause. And I don't know if I've uh, been able to prolong premenopause or perimenopause for women by giving them hormone support. All I know is I want to have them feeling good premenopausal, perimenopausal, and postmenopausal. I just want them feeling good. I want them to have good quality of life and, of course, protecting their health. I don't think that I can extend that. Now, I can, on a menopausal woman, induce a period. I can induce like high levels of estrogen and high levels of, of progesterone, and I can induce a period. Um, and matter of fact, I know some doctors who still induce periods in 60-year-olds and, and, and 70-year-olds, which I have not seen any evidence to support that thinking. Mm-hmm. Got it. So let's talk about the postmenopausal woman because you know there's obviously a lot of hope for the premenopausal woman right that hasn't gone through menopause and knows these hormones are now available and you know has all of this at her disposal but what about someone who is say 60 65 they've gone through menopause maybe 10 years ago and they're starting to see the effects now they might still be dealing with hot flashes they might start to see more uh, forgetfulness and just less alertness and clear thinking they might be feeling like they've gained weight since they've gone through menopause they are also typically feeling like the libido is not what it used to be in these last 10 years. So what about them? Is it too late for them? What can they do? Because most doctors will say that, you know, once you've gone through menopause, you've missed your shot then and that's it. Well, the, the studies show that that the women who start hormones um, at menopause tend to have the absolute highest benefit, okay, as far as uh, health markers go. Now, not quality of life, because quality of life is alleviated no matter when we start the hormones, whether we start it at, right at menopause at 51, 50, 49, 52, or whether we start it at 60 or 65 or even later, it is okay to start the hormones. The only caveat that we've seen, and, and it's a very, very low risk, if a woman is in an advanced age, let's just say 
70 or older, that's where they drew the line, at 70 or older and already has pre-existing heart disease, meaning a lot of plaque in the arteries in the heart, then when they first start the estrogens, there's a, a slight, slight risk of throwing a clot, you know, because the estrogens cause the blood vessels in the heart to expand. And that's a good thing. They're supposed to be expansive. But if the, if they've got a, a plaque on there, then they could break something off. Now, I want to I want to understate how that that risk is is extremely small, but that's the only risk that I've I've seen to be honest with you with starting it late. But the majority of my women don't start after 70 and I have lots of women who do. I started my mom at 84. She'd gone off of hormones because of a breast cancer um, issue at uh, 65 and didn't take any hormones for all those years and then new new research came out that said, "You know what? It's okay." to have hormones after breast cancer. Matter of fact, women who've had breast cancer and go back on hormones have a reduced risk of recurrence. And I was just going, whoa, I did not know that. And so, and my mom was having some symptoms that would have been helped with the hormones. So we started her at 84, you know, back on them. And, and I thought that was great. You know, her doctor was, was wide open thinking and said, you know what, Jim, let's do it. If it'll help her quality of life. You know, so, but let's just go back to the 60-year-old. The what the studies say is that, yes, we're going to uh, be protective against heart disease and stroke and osteoporosis and breast cancer and dementia and all those things, even if you start at 60. And it, the studies also say that the longer a woman stays on it, the more protected she is the more protected she is. So in other words, there's no rule that says that you you should be on them for four or five years and then go off of them. That's that's completely been thrown by the wayside. Now, even traditional medicine says that the longer a woman stays on the hormones, the more protected she is. And I want to I want to really hammer that home because a lot of women still have that thought in the back of their mind that I can't stay on these longer than five years. And that was false data. That, that was fake news. Yeah, 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 no, and that's so, so important, and that's so, so good to know. And so then this woman who is, let's say, 60 or 65, and she wants to start hormones, do you then suggest that she also do a baseline test? Because we sort of know that that test is going to show that everything is pretty low. She's already in menopause, right? Well, we know that her estrogen is going to be low. We know that her progesterone will be low. But what we don't know is her testosterone. I've had some women at 60 still have really strong testosterones. So we're going to look at testosterone. We're also going to look at the adrenals. You know, and, and I, sometimes I can't get women to do a full adrenal saliva test or urine test, you know, but I can get them to do at least a DHEA sulfate and an AM cortisol. And uh, and so we'll get those numbers and we at least get a, just a hint of what their adrenals are doing. If they have nice, strong DHEA levels, DHEA sulfate, I should say, levels, then, then that gives me a hint that their adrenals are still holding in there uh, pretty well. They don't have dysregulation of the adrenals. So now I'm looking at, do I want to do that estrogen, that progesterone testing? I don't have to. Most doctors want to have that just so it's in the chart. Because remember, it's their license on the line. So they want to be able to say, okay, this is what it was before I started therapy. And here's what it is after I started therapy. That way, if anybody is asking and questioning their judgment, they've got living documents that show that, yes, I'm doing my due diligence. I'm doing the standards of practice and I'm testing prior to and then during therapy to make sure that I'm I'm uh, doing a good job. So then they would test and then they would work with their doctor to then get a compounded formulation with estrogen and progesterone and possibly testosterone if they need it. Right. 
Now, in terms of estrogen, there's a couple ways that that could be done, right? So there's estradiol, but then sometimes I know people use estrone or estriol. Let's talk about that a little bit. After menopause, a woman's body makes estrone automatically. It comes from the adrenals. The adrenals make DHEA. DHEA is then converted into estrone. So they're getting plenty of estrone. They're also getting estrone from fat tissues. Therefore, we don't need to give extra estrone. And plus, estrone is kind of the black sheep of the estrogens in that it does have two risky metabolites. Uh, It has one good metabolite and it has two risky metabolites. And so I don't want to give any more estrone than we already have on board. But what I can say is that women have essentially stopped making estradiol and estriol um, for the most part. Therefore, I like to give a combination of estradiol, which is the most potent estrogen, has the most actions in the body and in the brain and on the heart and on the bones and all that stuff. But I want to also give estriol, which is a protective estrogen. It's kind of a weak estrogen, but it's protective for breast cancer. It makes women feel better and it protects against Again, breast cancer, and also it helps the brain. Um, so, so we like estriol on board. It's kind of like putting gravy on your chicken fried steak, you know, here in Texas. <laughs> and so, so yes, we do love something called biest, which is a combination of estradiol and estriol. And doctors give different percentages. I mean, some give 50-50 of each. Some give eighty percent estriol, twenty percent estradiol. That's my most. That's probably my favorite. Mm, so mostly estriol and not as much estradiol. Well, but let's just think, estriol is weak, so it takes a lot of it to have an effect in the body, whereas estradiol is really powerful. It doesn't take very much. Mm-hmm. So 20% estradiol may have one milligram of estradiol, and that's equivalent to about a 0.05 patch, if you're going to say something, hey, how much is that used to? I'm not a big fan of patches, you know, because most women are allergic to the adhesive. However, I do like the idea of these being applied transdermally on the skin. We found that that less clotting factors are activated. Matter of fact, no clotting factors are activated when we apply it topically. When we take estrogen orally, it goes from the stomach right to the liver, and liver is where all these clotting factors for clots happen. Oh. So it induces clotting factors in the liver, which then go to a higher level and could increase the risk of, of forming a clot, like a DVT, a deep vein thrombosis. Um, so we don't want to do that. And so therefore, if I had my preference, I would use transdermal estradiol and estriol. And if we have a woman who transdermal is just not giving her the results she wants, then we will switch to a very concentrated um a small, small amount, we're talking about a half of the size of a pea, an English pea, that we apply to the labia. Now, the labia are like mucous membranes, and hormones just shoot through the labia into the bloodstream, almost like you gave an injection. And so it is. it works every time. And so I probably have maybe 90% of my women who are on, on transdermal hormones on the transdermal, on the skin, through the skin, and the other 10% are using the labial. And some of them want labial simply because they said, I don't want to have transference to my baby or my grandbaby or, or uh, you know, my dog or something. So, so anyway, um, it, there's advantages to labial. Gotcha. And is it true that you said that the dose of the labial would be less than the dose you would use for a regular transdermal? Did I understand that correctly? Absolutely. Because um, since hormones are absorbed so much better through the labia tissues than through the skin, the skin is a barrier. 
the labia is not a barrier. It's actually, again, like sponge tissues. And so therefore, it makes sense that you're going to have to use a lower dose on the labia than you would on the skin. So it sounds like there's a lot of advantages there. The labial? Yeah. But I have someone who are not comfortable with labial application, and that's okay. Right. Matter of fact, uh, my wife doesn't mind talking about it. She uses two days on transdermal, one day labial. Two days transdermal, one day labial. And because, you know, she has fine-tuned this because she was my very first hormone patient way back in the 80s. Um, and, uh, and, and so she doesn't mind me talking about her, by the way, so it's okay. <laughs> but, but, you know what, we fine-tuned her by doing both, you know, and that's okay. You know, and uh, and she says, you know, it gives me really great control. I feel great. I mean, I feel like I did when I was much younger. And and there's nothing wrong with a 66 year old woman who who feels younger. You know, nothing wrong with that at all, for sure. So, what about in terms of periods? So, this 60 or 65 year old woman obviously is not cycling anymore. As she starts to do these hormones, can there be some breakthrough bleeding? What other effects can they feel? That's, that's a really good question also. Um, if a woman has, well, we're supposed to be giving balanced hormones, okay? And we give suppressive therapy, which means we give the estrogen every day. We give the progesterone every day. And if testosterone is on board, we give it every day. And, uh, and so the progesterone being used every day suppresses the effects of estrogen in the uterus. So if a woman still has her uterus, then estrogen is causing the tissues inside the uterus to grow, to, to proliferate. But progesterone is the anti-proliferative hormone. Therefore, it controls that growth in the uterus. And we have millions and millions of case studies that show that, that giving the progesterone every day suppresses that growth inside the uterus. Therefore, they don't need to have a period. And matter of fact, once a year, I love my women to go uh, and get an endometrial stripe done, which is they use a sonogram. And, and they look at the, the lining of the uterus and say, oh, okay, it's in perfect shape. It is uh, two millimeters, which is the, it would, it's, we don't want it too, too thin, we, but we don't want it too thick either. Therefore, we're protecting their health, protecting against the risk of uterine cancer. We're protecting against having a uterus that is too thin and, and has breakthrough light pink bleeding. But if a woman does have bleeding, then it's two things. Number one, we don't have enough progesterone on board to balance the estrogen. And so the, the tissues inside the uterus are wanting to slough off, just like they do every month premenopausally. Or number two, there are fibroid tumors growing inside the uterus, um, which usually, I mean, gosh, I think it's like 65% of women in America, maybe even 70, have some degree of fibroid growth, which is a benign growth on the uterus. It can be on the inside of the wall, on the middle of the wall, or on the outside of the wall. And unfortunately, that it, it, if it bleeds um, and you're having breakthrough bleeding, menopausally, it could be the fibroids. That's why you'd like to have that sonogram that I was talking about. It's called transvaginal ultrasound. And if they get that and they find, oh, look, here's the uterus, that's the little bleeder, and they can zap it. You know, I mean, it, it's usually not a big deal. It, and when it's ignored for years and years, that's when they get to be big deals. Right. No, that makes sense. But if they don't have fibroids, then typically it just means that there's probably not enough progesterone and more estrogen. So the lining is building up too much, and that's why they're getting a bleed. Yep. We've got estrogen dominance in a, in a menopausal female. Just Right. Okay. But just to make sure that everyone knows, they're not supposed to start bleeding. 
fascinating because sometimes people think, oh, if I'm balancing my hormones to where I was in my 30s, am I going to get a period again? And the answer is no, you're not supposed to. That's not what we're trying to achieve. Now, there are some high profile personalities out there. I mean, I think Suzanne is one. She and her doctor have decided that she feels like it's best for her if she does have a period every month. I don't understand that thinking. I don't see I don't see any science behind it, which means studies which prove that it's safer. But she feels good about it. And, and that's OK. You know, if that's what she wants to do, it's okay. She's not hurting anything by causing that to happen. But most of my women would say, you know what? If I don't have to have my monthly visitor, I am tickled pink. <laughs> yeah. And I'm assuming with people that are purposely making it so they have the monthly bleed, I'm assuming they're probably cycling through the progesterone and not doing the same dose the whole month, right? Yes. Matter of fact, they're they're doing the the cycling thing with the progesterone. Um, and when they when the progesterone levels stop, when they when they stop the progesterone, then all they have left is estrogen um, happening in their system. Therefore, the uterus gets a signal, hey, it's time to slough. And so therefore mm-hmm. it sloughs off the inside lining of the uterus. And there's no benefit though to like refresh that lining? No. And again, I've looked for that because I thought, what if what if I'm wrong? What if I really should be doing that. And there is no evidence to say that that increases protection against anything. There are opinions out there, but the opinions aren't backed by any science. Therefore, um, I'm looking for it. I'm always evaluating my protocols, say, is this right or do I need to improve myself? Because throughout the years, I found out new caveats of information that I've applied to my protocols in order to make sure that my patients have the best benefits. Right. And, you know, that's what I love about the work that you do, that you're always researching, you're always trying things, you're always looking to make sure that you're on top of everything. So that's really, really wonderful to hear. You've got to put your ego aside and say, what is best for my patients? Yeah, absolutely. Now, Jim, what is happening right now on the legislative front when we talk about bioidentical hormones? Yeah, I just got back from D.C. last night at 10 (laughs) o'clock. And I can tell you, I was up on the Hill uh, talking to legislators. Um, You know, we had both uh, talked to both senators and congresswomen um, about and as congressmen, excuse me, both um, about the issue. And the FDA um, is a needed entity. They do good work in a lot of areas. When it comes to to compounding, the FDA has an anti-compounding culture, which they readily admit. And uh, and we have the, the outgoing head of FDA even admitted, you know, we have, a, we have an anti-compounding culture in the FDA. So they really want us gone. And, you know, it's amazing that, that 8 million patients, which is more than half of all patients on hormones, use compounded bioidentical hormones. So we're talking a lot of people, and the FDA has made the decision they want to try to rid America of compounded bioidentical hormones. And so, anyway, it's, it's, a, it's an overreach that, that they, unfortunately, are, are out of the loop on what's best for patients. And, uh, and, and of course, they lean towards pharma. As you can imagine, mm-hmm. so they they are trying to uh, formulate all kinds of plans to get rid of us. One of them, what they commissioned a study um, at National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine on the clinical utility of compounded biological hormones, and basically that means are they useful and safe? Are they or are they not? And they they packed the panel with people who are anti-compounding. They they uh, had people who testified they were anti-compounding. I got got to testify for three hours for pro-compounding. And, and all the benefits that I see in my patients and what the science says. And, uh, and they ignored all of the, the positive studies that we showed them. And they only 
uh, came up with negative commentary about the study, which is exactly what the FDA intended. And matter of fact, the FDA even contributed to those findings, which is illegal, by the way. When when an, a national entity is commissioned by a, an enforcement agency like FDA um, to do a study, they can't have any influence on the study. They can't tell you the, the study Who's going to be on the panel? They can't tell you what are the results going to be. And and we found out through Freedom of Information, uh, getting emails from the FDA, that they had determined before the study even happened what the result was going to be. And so it's no longer science. It is an opinion piece. And, and that opinion is not well-versed. I mean, we gave them hundreds of – I gave them hundreds of studies myself. And they ignored every one of those studies and said, nope, we're not going to use those studies. And they used s- silly studies that didn't have anything to do with what we do. I mean, I mean, they, they had five or six studies on DHEA, which we weren't even talking about DHEA. We're talking about estrogen and progesterone and testosterone. And, and wow. they didn't even address it. It was just really sad. So bottom line is, is that there is a movement out there uh, by the Academy for Pharmacy Compounding, which represents doctors who, who prescribe compounds or represents pharmacists who compound, patients who receive compounded hormones. And, uh, and this academy it has a website um, www.compounding.com. And now if, if you're using bioidentical hormones and having a good outcome, go on there and, and tell your story, just a quick little story. And your congressman, we're showing those stories to your congressman. Your congressman will see those and go, wow, you know, that's important because back in 2007, um, what happened is FDA was urged by Wyeth Pharmaceuticals, the makers of Primpro, Primrin, pregnant marriage urine, to outlaw estriol. And they said it represents a health risk to the women of America. FDA took that recommendation from a pharmaceutical manufacturer and banned estriol. Well, Wyeth Pharmaceutical had two uh, patented medicines that it was distributing in Europe to European women that had estriol in it. And uh, so somehow they were saying that it's safe for European women, but not for American women. And I laugh about that to this day. But the bottom line is the FDA tried to ban estriol and the women of America rose up in the millions. And they started calling their congressmen and the congressmen started screaming at the FDA, remove that ban and remove it now. And I mean, it was not two weeks before the FDA removed the ban on estriol because patients' voices mattered. And so I want to make sure that that when you give a testimony, your voice matters. You know, and, and we even have a nice little video that talks about the, you know, the joy of compounding and how it helps lives. And and it, we just want to preserve access to compounded medicines, including compounded hormones, because it's not about us, it's about the patient. You know, we are caregivers. We know we just like you and you're, you're a caregiver. You care for patients in the right way. And uh, and your patients are so lucky to have you. And so we just want to be able to offer our portion of health care to patients. Mm, yeah. Well, Jim, thank you so much for all of the work that you're doing and all of the lobbying and testifying to really stand up for this because compounding hormones, bioidentical hormones, you know, as we just discussed today, there is just so much benefit. And, you know, I really appreciate all the work that you do. And also thank you for all of the detailed information today about what women can do and how they can look into this. You know, we talk so much about what can be done and the testing and the different options that people have so that women know that as their hormones start to decline, if they do want to go the bioidentical hormone route, it's available and it can make them feel better if that's what they decide to do. So thank you. Thank you so much for all of this information, Jim. 
Oh, you bet. And and I hope women are not disappointed if they go to their traditional doctor and they say, you know what, I don't, don't know anything about bioidentical hormones. You know, it's, it's out of my wheelhouse. And sometimes women have to go to a, another prescriber, another provider that does know something about biological hormones in order to get a good balanced therapy. Okay. So just want to make sure they're not disappointed if they go to their traditional doctor and, and get turned down. That doesn't mean they're bad. It means the doctor just doesn't know anything about them. Absolutely. That's a really good point. Jim, thank you so much. And I look forward to keeping in touch and we'll talk soon. Thanks for having me. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.